Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. We are wrapping up our series in the book of Titus and today's teaching is entitled The Theological Trouble with Titus. So if you have been with us the last two weeks in this series on the book of Titus, then you know that we've been working this series around an argument that Dr. Margaret Mitchell makes about the book of Titus. Her exact words in a commentary written in 2010 are this, most scholars today regard 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus as pseudepigraphical, which is a fancy academic way to say that Paul probably didn't write Titus. Now, Dr. Mitchell knows that you can't make a claim like that when the book of Titus says it's written by Paul without offering some supporting arguments. And so Dr. Mitchell says there are historical problems with Titus, literary problems with Titus, and theological problems with Titus. Because of that, two weeks ago, we talked about the historical problems with Titus and how Paul references church positions and ideas that did not exist until the second century, even though Paul lived in the first century. Then last week, we talked about literary problems with Titus and the fact that the language that's in Titus is much more common and found in the second century of Christian thought and theology than it is in the first century of Christian thought and theology. Which leads us to this week, where we focus on the theological problems with Titus. Now, to talk about the theological problems with Titus, we have to look at the entire book of Titus. It's just three chapters, but we kind of have to go through and group what each paragraph or what each idea is saying. So we're going to give an overview of the entire book, and if you are listening and you have a Bible handy, I'd encourage you to open to the book of Titus. We'll start at the very beginning and go all the way to the end. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, there is an introduction. This is where the author claims that it is Paul that is writing this letter and that it is to Titus that this letter is addressed. Then in chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, we read about how bishops and elders are to be blameless people. Then in verses 10 to 16, the author tells Titus that his congregation should not trust the Jews because the Jews don't really know who God is. Now, if that sounds like an anti-Semitic statement to you, then you're absolutely right because it is anti-Semitic. And we talked about that at length in the last two podcasts. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, the author tells Titus that he must teach sound doctrine. And from there, we enter a new phase of the book in verse 2 all the way down to verse 10 of chapter 2. Here, the author wants to focus on Christian behavior and how members of the congregation should behave. So in verse 2 of chapter 2, the author tells Titus that men must be sound in faith. Then in verses 3 to 5, the author tells Titus how the women should behave, and it can best be summed up that women must submit to their husbands. Now, if this sounds like a sexist statement to you, well, that's because it is. And we talked about the sexism at length in the last two episodes. Then in verses 6 to 8, the author tells Titus about young men and how they must become model citizens. Then in verse 9 and 10, the author tells Titus that slaves must obey their masters. Now, if that sounds like an immoral statement to you, well, that's because it is. And it's difficult for us to read. And we talked about the immorality of that statement at length the last two weeks. 
Which brings us to chapter 2, verse 11. Now, this is an important verse because it is the first theological verse in the entire book. And most Christians, when they hear this verse out of context, would agree with what this verse has to say. Chapter 2, verse 11 reads, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. And while most Christians would say amen to that statement, when you keep reading the implications of that statement according to the author, you realize that there are some rather dark consequences to this theology. Now let's read it in context and see what the author expects in response for that theological statement. We're going to read chapter 2, verse 11 to 13. The author writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions and in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when Christians hear the words worldly passions today, we often think of sex. But a quick review reveals that this is not what the author is concerned about. The worldly passions this author is concerned about is, one, the equality of women, and two, the liberation of slaves. So what happens here, and it's really important to pay close attention to the context of this statement, is that the author dispenses some theology. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, so that we will not seek equality of women or the liberation of slaves, and instead we'll behave and get along with our society so that we might become respectable. In other words, you can sum up chapter 2, verses 12 to 15 as a response to that theological statement in verse 11 where the author says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, so that you will obey. This rolls right into the thesis statement of this letter. It's found in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, and it is best summarized by the author telling Titus that real Christians obey the authorities. Now, after that statement, the author makes two more theological statements, the first in verses 3 to 5, and then the second in verses 6 and 7. In 3 to 5, the author turns to Titus and tells Titus about their history together. He says, do you remember, Titus, what it was like before we were baptized? Well, we were disobedient. We didn't follow any rules. And then we were baptized, and we became very obedient. In other words, the author is saying the whole sacrament of baptism serves as a turning point from when you don't care at all about what religious authorities have to say to then you are baptized and all of a sudden you obey everything that they tell you to do. So baptism is all about obedience, according to this author. Then in chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, the author makes his third and final theological statement, and it can be summarized with these words, God gave us the Spirit so that we may inherit heaven. Now, most Christians I know would agree with this statement, but once again, when you place it in context, you realize that there's an overt power move or implication that the author wants to say because of this theology. We're going to read Titus 3, 6 to 8 and see what the author wants people to do in response to this theology. It begins with a theological statement in verse 6. 
This spirit he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 8 then reads, the saying is sure. I desire that you insist on these things so that those who have come to believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable to everyone. In other words, the author is telling Titus, insist on this theology that God gave us the spirit so that we may inherit heaven so that your congregation will obey and not cause any problems for us. Then in chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, he says, If anyone disagrees with you, allow one disobedience, maybe two, and then kick them out of your congregation. That then leads into the last section of the book, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 3, and goes all the way to the end, where there is a farewell. And that brings the book of Titus to a close. When you look at the entire book of Titus, I think it's very easy to see what the theology of Titus is. The theology of Titus is that obedience is the highest form of spiritual maturity. In other words, everything exists so that you may learn to obey. Baptism is there so that you can obey. God gave grace to heaven and earth so that you may obey. And the role of the Spirit is that the Spirit exists and lives with us to teach us how to obey. So the theology of Titus is that obedience is the highest form of spiritual maturity. Now this theology has some implications. And while I could tell you about those implications, I think it's better if I show you what those implications are. And to show you what those implications are, we're going to play a bit of a game here on the Paradox Podcast. And this game is called, What If the Author of Titus Directed That Movie? So we're going to look at three different movies and ask the question, what if the author of Titus directed that movie? Because if the author of Titus really believes that obedience is the highest form of spiritual maturity well, then he would definitely change the way that these three very famous movies would go. So the first movie I'd like to play with our game is a movie that came out in 1965 and is considered one of the great cinema classics of the 20th century, The Sound of Music, starring Julie Andrews. Now, I believe this movie would start off the same, and the author of Titus would direct this movie toward a very different ending. So the movie begins with that iconic helicopter shot of Julie Andrews, who's playing Maria, singing among the mountains in Austria with the words, the hills are alive with the sound of music. And then all of a sudden, she's enjoying singing so much, but she realizes she's late, and so she picks up her belongings and sprints back down the hills toward the abbey, where she finds a group of nuns waiting for her and shaking their heads at her. They then ask the existential question, how do you solve a problem like Maria? And the mother of the Abbey, Mother Abbess, has no choice but to send Maria on a soul-searching trip to take care of the Von Trapp children and their captain or their father, Georg Von Trapp. Now, the captain is all about discipline, and Maria is all about joy and singing. 
And as the movie goes, the children start to adore Maria and they start to rebel against their father. And the father realizes that he has been not a great father all along. Now, obviously, this seems like a match made in heaven. There's just one problem. The captain has a girlfriend, the Baroness Elsa Schrader. And there's one point in the movie right before the intermission occurs when the captain and Maria are dancing together and the Baroness sees it and she is filled with intense jealousy, but she keeps her cool because she's the Baroness. The Baroness then escorts Maria to her room and watches her change in a very creepy scene. And then she tells Maria that the captain is falling for her because Maria is falling for him. And the only thing that Maria can do to save this situation is to leave and to return to the Abbey. Now, Maria is racked with guilt. She is not a home wrecker. And so she says, okay, I will leave. I will leave then. And it's here that the Baroness says that haunting, chilly, infamous line where she says, goodbye, Maria. I'm sure you'll make a very fine nun. Maria escapes from the Van Trapp mansion under the cover of darkness and returns to the Abbey. She puts her habit back on and seeks counsel and wisdom from the mother of the Abbey. Now it's here where we are used to hearing the song Climb Every Mountain that I believe the author of Titus would change this movie if he was directing it. And instead of Mother Abbess singing Climb Every Mountain, he would have Mother Abbess sing a very different song called Stare at the Mountains. And the chorus would have these lyrics. Stare at the mountains, stay on this side of the stream. Don't chase the rainbow because this abbey is your dream. Now it's here that the director, being the author of Titus, would then turn the camera back toward Maria and give a pause and allow a moment for Maria to consider her options. And it's here that Maria then would look at the mother of the Abbey and say, you're right, mother. I'm going to make a very fine nun. And the movie would then fade to black. And the words directed by the author of Titus would come up on the screen. Now, if you don't believe me that the author of Titus would direct this movie that way, I would refer you to that thesis statement found in Titus chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, when he writes, Remind your congregation to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show every courtesy to everyone. Which brings us to our second movie in the game, What If the Author of Titus Directed That Movie? We are going to go to the year 1998 to the animated Disney classic Mulan. Now Mulan is a good girl who can't quite seem to fit in with what society wants her to be. And when she is not sure that she can bring honor to her family, all of a sudden there is a military draft. And because her father has no sons, he only has Mulan, her father has to serve even though he is disabled and elderly. Mulan cannot stomach the idea of her aged father going into war and dying. So she does the unthinkable. She dresses up like a man, takes her father's armor and her father's sword, and goes to register for the draft. She then enters the military posing as a man named Ping. And because of Mulan's bravery, she helps the Chinese Imperial Army defeat the Huns in a decisive battle in the shadow of a mountain. 
Now, unfortunately, Mulan, or Ping, is injured in battle, and a doctor begins to examine her and discovers that she is a woman. She is then brought out in the snow before the commanding officer and thrown at the commanding officer's feet and says, you know the law, this is treason, she is to be executed. Now, Shang, the commanding officer, looks at her and says, a life for a life, and allows her to live, but sends her home. Now, it's here that I believe the author of Titus, if he was given the director's chair, would change the movie. Because while in the original movie, Mulan sneaks around and returns to the Imperial Army, the author of Titus would have Mulan going home to her father. Now, her father would see Mulan and say, what happened? And Mulan would respond with these words penned by the author of Titus himself. Mulan would say to her dad, I'm sorry, father. I know now that only men should serve in the military. I'm going to go and find a husband who can tell me how to behave. Now, it's here that the author of Titus would direct this movie where the violins would swell and the father of Mulan would embrace his daughter with a giant hug and whisper in her ear, Mulan, I'm so proud of you because you discovered that men always know what's best for women. And then this movie would fade to black and the words directed by the author of Titus would come up as the movie comes to a close. Now it's here that you may disagree with me that the author of Titus would not direct this movie that way. But to show you that he probably would do that, I will read Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. When the author of Titus writes, Likewise, tell the older women to be reverent in behavior, not to be slanderers or slaves to drink. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, chaste, good managers of the household, kind, being submissive to their husbands, so that the word of God may not be discredited. These are the words of the author of Titus. Which brings us to our third movie in the game, What If the Author of Titus Directed That Movie? And for this, we're going to the year 2013 and the movie that won Best Picture that year, 12 Years a Slave. If you have not seen this movie, I highly recommend it because it's phenomenal. Now, in 12 Years a Slave, we follow Solomon Northup, who is born a free black man in the northern United States. However, he is tricked and captured and then kidnapped and sold into slavery and shipped to the southern United States where slavery is legal. So here you have Solomon Northup, who knows freedom, living among slaves who have never known freedom. This movie is overflowing with moments that are meaningful and confront many Americans' ignorance. But there are two scenes that confronted my own ignorance that will stay with me for the rest of my life. These two scenes revolved around plantation owners reading the Bible to the slaves to justify abhorrent behavior. There's one scene where the plantation owner is reading to the slaves to justify slavery and to ask them to obey more. There is another scene where another slave owner is about to whip a slave and he reads from the Gospels to justify that whipping. These two scenes are disgusting scenes. But if the author of Titus was directing this movie, 
I think they'd have a very different tone. The scenes would stay largely intact, but both times the author of Titus would zoom in on the face of Solomon Northup, hearing these words of scripture, and then he would lean to the slaves on either side of him and say something along these lines. Well, if the Bible says that slavery is moral, then it must be moral. From there, Solomon Northup would then gather up his things, take them to the cotton field, put his hat on, and start to smile and whistle while he works as he obeys his master. We would then get a helicopter shot out of Solomon working in the cotton fields. There would be a sunset set to inspirational music, and then it would fade to black. And we would read on the screen the words directed by the author of Titus. Now, if you want to argue with me that the author of Titus would never direct this movie that way, I would read to you from Titus chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. When the author writes, Tell slaves to be submissive to their masters and to give satisfaction in every respect. They are not to answer back, not to pilfer, but to show complete and perfect fidelity, so that in everything they may be an ornament to the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, we've played this game. What if the author of Titus directed that movie? And we considered three movies, The Sound of Music, Mulan, and 12 Years a Slave. And what I hope you can gather from this game is that if the author of Titus directed these movies, then these movies would be terrible movies. They'd be awful. Nobody would go see them. They wouldn't win Best Picture. We wouldn't still sing their songs today they would be objectively terrible movies. And the reason for this is when you look at the theology of Titus, that obedience is the highest form of spiritual maturity, what we have found as human beings is that simply isn't true. It doesn't resonate with the human experience, that everything exists so that we might obey. And when people read the book of Titus and they feel like this is a very thin or problematic thesis statement, they often turn to Paul and they say, hey, Paul, why'd you write this? To which I picture Paul responding by saying, hey, hey, don't blame me. I most likely didn't write Titus. Because when you want to talk about the theological problem of Titus, you have to talk about how all theology exists so that people might obey better. But the fact is, if Paul was on this podcast, I believe his testimony would be, after I met Jesus, I rarely obeyed the religious authority. And we could have Peter on this podcast, and Peter would say, yeah, we told Paul to do things. He would never do them. We could have James, the brother of Jesus, on this podcast, who was the head of the Jerusalem church, who would tell you about how he wished Paul would take orders. We could bring the high priest who was appointed by Rome on this podcast, and he would say, Paul? Paul never listens to anyone. <laughs> So when there's a book that comes along that says, hey, whatever you do, just make sure that you obey the religious leaders. And it's supposedly written by someone who never obeyed the religious leaders. You can see how there's a disconnect there. Not only that, but when you acquaint yourself with Paul's writings, you know that Paul wrote at length about obedience and how he understood obedience to be valuable and also what the shortcomings of obedience actually were. 
The passage I'm referring to is Romans chapter 13. Now, if you know American history, you know that Romans 13 has been used to justify some of the worst sins in American history. The reason for this is because Paul talks about obedience. And in Romans 13, he tells the people of Rome that government leaders are appointed by God and you should obey what they tell you to do. So in American history, you had government leaders who wielded this verse in the Bible telling people that they had to obey what the government decided was best. This is a very problematic passage in Scripture. But what most people don't talk about is that Paul keeps writing about this idea where he then transcends what he just wrote in Romans 13, 1-7. In verse 8, Paul talks about something higher than obedience. He writes, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, if you're like me, you hear Paul saying anyone who loves another has fulfilled the law. And you say, wait, Paul, are you summarizing all of the commandments and just basically telling us they're all there so that we can learn how to love better? Now, it's here that some people who are more conservative than me might say, you can't say that Paul's actually saying that, to which I would say, you're right. We'll let Paul actually say that because he says that in Romans 13, 9. The very next verse reads the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Then in verse 10, he writes, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. In other words, for Paul, there is such a thing as spiritual maturity. And when you consider the context of Romans 13, 1 to 7, Paul talks there about how there is value for obedience. In other words, Paul believes that obedience is a necessary step to spiritual maturity, but obedience is not spiritual maturity itself. And when you look at the way Paul writes Romans 13, 1 to 7, he is assuming that there are good government officials in charge. Government officials who care deeply about the people over which they govern. So with that in mind, obedience at its best is when we trust an authority figure who strongly desires what is best for us. With that understanding, obedience becomes a way to respond or receive love from people who have gone before us. Because obedience at its best is when we trust an authority figure who strongly desires what is best for us. Now in verse 8 and verse 10, Paul says this idea twice, that love is the fulfillment of the law. In between those verses, he talks about how every commandment exists so that we might learn how to love with more of our hearts and in deeper ways. In other words, Paul transcends obedience and says obedience is not the point. There's something higher. And the fact is that love is the highest form of spiritual maturity. Now, this is a statement that we know is true. And so our society tells stories that reminds us that love is the highest form of spiritual maturity. Just think about the three movies we talked about earlier in this podcast. 
If we begin with the sound of music, we go back to that scene where Maria is confiding in Mother Abbess about she doesn't know what she wants and she's trying to find her way in this world. It's here that Mother Abbess sings to her the song, Climb Every Mountain, and Maria's inspired and she says, I'm tired of being obedient. I need to do what's best for me. So Maria races back to the Van Trapp family. Georg dumps his girlfriend, the Baroness, which <laughs> this movie from her perspective isn't that great, but let's just try not to think about it. She ends up getting married to the captain and the family starts disobeying left and right. The captain, Georg, starts ripping Nazi flags apart. And eventually when the Nazi party is hunting for them, they escape under the cover of darkness into the Alps. And as they are climbing through the mountains, we hear the choral music sing, climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow until you find your dream. Now that's a movie. And the whole premise is you obey up until a certain point and then it's time to disobey. Which brings us back to the movie Mulan. Now, there is that scene where Mulan is exposed as a woman and she is thrown at the feet of Shang. Shang then dismisses her to her home, but Mulan does not go. Instead, she receives intel that the Huns are not dead and they are planning an attack on the capital city of Beijing. And so Mulan tries to warn the others they won't listen to her because she's a woman. So she ends up having to do it herself. The Huns ambush the Chinese Imperial Army in Beijing but Mulan is ready for them. She ends up chasing the leader, Shan Yu, all the way up to the rooftops and fights him on a one-on-one -on -one sword battle and defeats him and then gets off the roof as fireworks explode all around her. The emperor tells her, you have saved China. He then takes the crest from around his neck and gives it to her as a symbol of honor. Now Mulan travels home to visit her father after having lied to him and to her family about where she was going when she went to join the army. She sees her father and she bows before him. She presents him with the sword of Shan Yu and the crest of the emperor and tells him that they are gifts to honor the Fa family. Mulan's father takes the sword and the crest and tosses them on the ground and hugs his daughter. And in her ear, he whispers, the greatest gift and honor is having you for a daughter. If you watch this movie at the Hadley household, you will be given side commentary by my daughter who always asks the same question at this point in the movie. The question she asks is, Daddy, why are you crying? And at that point, I just embrace my daughter and I kiss her on the head and I say, Maya, I just want you to know that you never have to get down to business. You never have to defeat the Huns because my daughter, the greatest gift and honor is having you for a daughter. And I mean it. <laughs> Which brings us to the third movie, 12 Years a Slave. Now, in the opening of the movie, you see Solomon Northrup with his wife and his two kids, and those kids are kids. 
But because he is sold into slavery and spends 12 years in slavery trying to escape, and then he finally escapes when he returns to his family in the last scene, and he sees his kids for the first time in 12 years. And they aren't kids, they're adults. And these two white men who kidnapped Solomon Northup and sold him into slavery made a couple bucks and they stole 12 years of this man's life. 12 years of watching his kids grow up. And I mean, I can't, I can't imagine, I can't imagine what that must be like. And in this scene, in this fantastic movie, Solomon Northup walks in and sees his kids for the first time in 12 years as adults. And he just begins to weep. And all he can say is, I apologize for the way I look. And his daughter, who is 12 years older, walks forward and hugs him for the first time in 12 years. They say a few words. And then all of a sudden he looks and he says, who's this? And he points to a man who's in the room he doesn't recognize. And his daughter says, this man is my husband. And he's holding your grandson. And we named him after you. Solomon Northup Staunton. You know, the tears are flowing from everyone in the family. They all get in closer, and he hugs his wife for the first time in 12 years. And the last words of the movie, and it's hard to explain why these words are these words unless you watch the whole movie, but he says, Anne, forgive me. And she responds by saying, there is nothing to forgive. And then the last shot is Solomon in an embrace with his grandson and his family. After it fades to black, we read about how Solomon Northup then went on to be one of the foremost voices of the abolitionist movement because he believed that no one should have to suffer the same way that he suffered. Now, why do I talk about these three movies? The reason is because these movies are great movies because Maria, Mulan, and Solomon all abandon obedience to recklessly pursue love. Now, in some of these stories, it's love of self, other it's love for family, other it's love of country, other it's love of justice. But at some point, they all said, obedience will only get me so far. And there's some point where I have to let go of obedience so that I can continue to grow in love, which is the highest form of spiritual maturity. And so while Titus is filled with all kinds of problems, and while it wasn't most likely written by Paul, the value of Titus in our scripture is it dares us to ask the question, who was Paul really? And for most of his life, Paul obeyed the religious laws until he realized they were getting in the way of his ability to love the people around him. And when I look at the life of Paul and the writings of Romans, they are beautiful and they inspire me to this day because they challenge me to remember that we are called to disobey whenever anything inhibits our ability to love. 
So if your religion prevents you from loving someone, then get rid of that religion. If you have come across a law in the Old Testament that is difficult for you to obey and still love the person on the other side of that law, Paul would tell you to get rid of that law. If your government threatens to arrest you if you continue in your loving behavior, Paul would tell you to go ahead and get arrested. Because the whole point of the Bible is to help you to love more. And the minute it stops doing that, stop reading it. The whole point of church is so that you can learn how to love better. And if church gets together and says, well, we can't love those people, get rid of it. The whole purpose of the life of Jesus Christ was so that how we could somehow learn how to love more fully and deeply. And if somebody tells you, well, you know, at some point Jesus is going to come back and separate the sheep from the goats, then go hang out with the goats because I guarantee you that's where Jesus is. My brothers and sisters, we are called to disobey when anything inhibits our ability to love. May we remember that love is the highest form of spiritual maturity. And may we courageously strive to see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.